Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Maybe want to get a piece of that. Pretty good. I want to talk about sexy teens. I was getting erections. It's a very creepy feeling. I can guarantee that underwear theft will come up again. None of this is relevant. Pokemon, Pokeballs. 750 milliliter bottle of rum. Welcome to the Velocity Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy uncle Peter. He will say words at you. I, as I've mentioned several times, play a lot of video games. I never wanted to make a video game based podcast. Even though I would probably really enjoy talking about it, I think that's a saturated market. And me just going off on random topics actually means I have the freedom to talk about whatever I want. So, But one thing that comes up is with every generation of console, which every every new and improved aspect of video games, we get more and more realism. And I, I think we may have hit a point where publishers or designers or creators need to think, how much realism do we really want in our video games? Because one of the things that I never noticed that I did read about was in the game Red Dead Redemption 2. When your horse goes from a warm climate to a cold climate, the horse's testicles will shrink. Now that is a cute little addition. It's not something, again, I never noticed because I didn't look at the horse's testicles and then go to a cold climate and then look at his testicles again, because why would I? One of the things I was thinking about is, do we really need to spend processing power on that function? on the function of the size of the testicles. Because somewhere within the game, there's a function called horse testicle size. And it will do a measurement based on ambient temperature or something in the environment that they're in. And it will change the size of the testicles of the horse. Now, probably isn't very much processing power. But since there are so many things that could go wrong, and that's something that A, I would never look at, or B, never really want to look at, it seems like an unnecessary addition. Now, GTA 5 had something that I really liked. When you got out of a car, you drove around for a lot, and it was hot, the engine of the car would tick down. So hot engines, they had this sort of tick, 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 which is a sound that I was really familiar with. So when it made that noise, I was really happy. So that was a detail. That didn't take any more processing power than a character saying a line or ambient sound that was already going on. So to me... It was immersive in the game, but didn't take me out. But it never made me stop and go, was that necessary? I just kind of went, oh, cool, my car's ticking down. Game I have not played yet, so I don't have an actual opinion on it, is Death Stranding. But they have revealed that the character in Death Stranding will need to urinate. Now, they haven't said when or how. So I don't know if it's an automatic thing, like you just urinate every now and then of your own volition, or if there's actually like a meter that goes up when your pee tank gets full, and then you have to pee and get that out. Because we don't know how the mechanics of the game actually work, because again, it hasn't come out yet, I can't really make a strong opinion of it. But I don't know if I want to be forced to pee in a video game, because I already have to pee in real life, and it seems completely unnecessary. I have played video games for years and years and years, and pretty much every video game doesn't have UP, and I've never noticed. I've made People have made jokes about not eating in movies and video games and things like that and never going to the toilet, but it's because do we really want to see that? Now, in Death Stranding, we know that where you pee, mushrooms will grow. 
So I don't know if those are valuable mushrooms or magic mushrooms. But the thing is, mushrooms generally in video games are objects to be eaten. And now I'm thinking about the fact that you're just eating your own pee in a weird way. So I think maybe what we need to talk about is an upper limit of realism in video games. Because there will be a point when we get beyond necessity where you can do things that you don't need to do. So do you do them just for the sake of doing them? Do you do them for the sake of entertainment? Or do you just not do them? Because there will be choices when the answer should be, let's just not do that because it doesn't actually add to the experience. This ties into a, almost the exact opposite topic because uh, Call of Duty is coming out this month with another iteration. And actually, this one I'm actually going to buy. I played the beta. There was a lot of running and shooting and exploding and stuff that I really enjoy in life. Not in real life. I wouldn't enjoy that at all. But in fake life, something that I'm, I'm very pro-explodey, shooty stuff. And they talked to an ex-Marine and they talked about the realism in video games. They talked about how heavy it was. Now, here's the thing. Call of Duty as a video game is not realistic in any way at all. Because these characters in the game, because it's all primarily multiplayer, are running at top speed all the time. There's, that's the default setting. You are running. And then if you're running, and you can sprint, and that's it. So these are not just people. These are Olympic-level athletes who can run constantly at top speed and not get exhausted. And they're carrying their backpacks, and they're carrying guns, and they're shooting and stopping. And that's because the game is very high pace. The whole point of the game is it's really fast-paced. You get out there, you shoot, you shoot, you shoot, you die, you shoot, you shoot, you shoot, you die. There's no sort of pause going on. It's frenetic. There is also a lot of jumping out of second-story windows with no compunction, no consideration. It's just, I have to go from this second-story window across the road, so I'm just going to jump out the window and keep running as I do it. Now, realistically, that's how you break an ankle. And that, to me, was one of the most interesting things because there was an article in one of the like preceding copies of Call of Duty where they had the exact same conversation where they talked about the realism of video games and is this a good thing or a bad thing to do and morality and stuff like that. Whereas the person they spoke to in that instance said, no one in these games breaks their ankle. So that's how unrealistic they are. They are running constantly. They are jumping out of windows. There are explosions going off around them and no one trips or falls and no one breaks an ankle because 50% of the people in a single Call of Duty game should break their ankle. The way these guys are moving and jumping around and it's uneven terrain, it should just be broken ankles everywhere. It should basically half the game should be people lying on the ground going, ah, God, my ankle. Then there is the magic healing vision. So when you get shot in Call of Duty, but you don't die, your screen gets some jelly around the edge. That's what it looks like. It's a joke that's gone on many times. And if you don't get shot again and you go and hide for a little bit, it goes away. So you've been shot with a bullet and that will heal in seconds as long as you do not continually get shot. Again, not very realistic. The other one, there's actually two more. One is cooldown weapons. So if you are playing a game of Call of Duty, you can call in, let's say, an airstrike. You can only call in an airstrike if you have X amount of kills. So I think it's three or four or five or something like that. And you can call in a cruise missile. But it's a very unique system for governments to take on when they tie your ability to win a fight based not on the technology they have or availability, but, oh, you know what, soldier? You haven't killed enough guys. You do not get this tactic. 
So that is not very realistic. In fact, if you have the ability, you're just carrying around a pad that can call in a cruise missile, I think you would just do that at the beginning and lay waste to the whole village where you know is full of terrorists and no innocent civilians, and you'd be done with it in a few seconds. The final one is no tactics and no squads. Now, of course, this is the player base, and the player base of Call of Duty is run around as fast as you can, cover the map 20 times, and just shoot anything that moves I mean, I don't know how many times I've run into a room and had another character run into the other side of the same room and I shot at them and they shot at me. Turns out we're on the same team. But luckily, friendly fire is turned off. Again, not very realistic. So that we don't kill each other immediately. Because that would be, again, the other 50% of deaths. Would be players killing their own teammates and probably getting killed by their own teammates in the first few seconds of the game because they ran into a building from opposite sides of the building and they didn't communicate at all. Now, Call of Duty is fun, but when they talk about realism in Call of Duty and things like that, I just have to wonder what they're actually looking at, because it doesn't seem to be the same thing that I'm looking at. My company, like many companies, has a lot of meetings. I actually was listening to a podcast from Freakonomics about meetings the other day and talking about why people hate meetings. And the one preceding that was actually talking about open offices. And Japan has a lot of open offices and talking about why people hate them and are they less or more productive and whatnot. It was all very interesting stuff because this is the world I kind of live in in my day-to-day life. But something I realized when I was a kid... I used to watch a lot of science fiction, and the science fiction always had screens and people in remote locations talking to each other very easily. That's not impressive anymore. So now it's always like life-sized holograms standing in front of you, having a conversation with you with no lag. Now, we haven't quite got there yet, but we do have screens, and we talk to each other essentially in real time, and we can be in different cities, and in very if you have a good internet connection, you can be in different different countries quite easily and have very little lag between the conversation, and it all goes very well. Now, that, again, when I was young, was science fiction, and then I started to think, we have these meetings, and of course, like a lot of meetings, they're not particularly productive. A lot of times, you're just going over stuff again and again and again, or you're being told things that could have just been summarized in an email. Those are all very real world problems with meetings. But I'm thinking like when we get to what science fiction now, interplanetary communication, and the fact that this level of technology, as soon as it is implemented, is going to be used for the exact same thing. It's going to be used for meetings. People are going to be be on two planets. They're going to be one on Mars and one on Earth, let's say. And they work for the same, I assume, company at this point. And they're going to have to have meetings. So like, update meetings as to how things are going, the uh, the terraforming of the planet. And this, of course, will still have the same problem. A lot of meetings are not done in a productive fashion. And yet, here we have some of the highest level technology in the world today, and it's being used to take away or waste people's time in far more complicated, less effective meetings. And I think that's going to be exasperated as we go into space. So the time lag will be a hard thing to overcome. But when we do, because again, it will be possible if we're actually going to do it, then people will immediately jump on and go, well, now not only can I have a a meeting with all my people on Earth, I can also have a meeting with all my people on Earth and the people on Mars and the people on Jupiter and things like that. And the people in control of this technology will not see the problem with them using it to just waste other people's time who could be doing something more beneficial. So next time you're sitting in a meeting, think about, this is a way to entertain yourself, think about the level of technology employed. Because even if you're just doing a meeting in a room with other people, you are in a building. You have climate control and light 
and everyone has a cell phone. It's connected to Wi-Fi and GPS. And all these things are being used in your meeting at the moment. Think about the fantastic nature of this technology and how you feel at the moment and how life has not improved at all. Because you'd probably be rather out tracking some antelope, hunting it down so you can eat it with your family tight, and you'd feel a lot better at the end of the day. Now, do I want to give up my smartphone? If you said I never had to attend meetings again, I might actually say yes. But I am waiting for the first interplanetary meeting to discuss something that could have been sent in an email. So this episode has been mostly a response to people sending in some messages, which I really appreciate. I enjoy this. I enjoy the messages. I enjoy people calling me out. Now, someone, and this is not a surprise, has basically called me out for saying I crap on the U.S. too much, that I'm anti-American, which I don't believe is true. I actually don't think America as a concept is a bad thing. I think it dominating the news and the current policymakers have led you down a dark path. So the question was, what do you like about the United States? And I had to pause and think. Because I think I only focus on the negative. And this goes back to something I also said last week, that there's no reason to talk about positive stuff because it's good, and so that's already done. You focus on the negative, you try to think about ways to fix it. Now that is a very negative way of living your life, so I thought, okay, what are the good things about America? Then I went silent again for quite a long time. Because in my heart, I know there are lots of good things, but when I'm asked to make a list, it's one of those things when you're put on the spot and you can't think of anything. Then there was a story a woman told me. So this was a very old lady in Japan, and she was doing an English class with me, and it was just one-on-one, so we were really just talking. And the most exciting part was actually when she was talking about what she was like when she was young. So we were actually talking about youth today versus youth when she was young. So she was about 80-something when I was speaking to her. She had seen the end of World War II. And she said one of the things she did was when she saw some of the cute soldiers, and she's talking about American soldiers, she would push her kimono back really far so they could see the nape of her neck. Now in Japan at the time, that was like showing a lot of cleavage or hiking your skirt up really high. So she was saying, she understands the schoolgirls tend to roll the top of their skirts to make their skirts shorter, but when they go to school, they can roll them down, and then they fit within the like requirements of the school uniform. And so what she was saying is she gets it. Young girls at certain ages want to be sexy, and she wanted to be sexy. And so the time she grew up in was far more conservative, but she still pushed the boundaries. So she understood kids pushing boundaries. Now that's completely unrelated. But it showed that she had a very worldly view because she didn't say, like, the way I did it's the only right way to do it. She connected what she did to what young people do today. So this was one of the things I really respected was this woman had a unique perspective and she could connect ways of thinking over time. Despite the fact that behavior might appear to be different, it was actually exactly the same. Downtown Nagoya has a long strip of park in between two large roads and then on either side are the big buildings. So there's actually like a giant sort of beautiful walkway. And there are trees there and a lot of other things. And she was telling me she remembered when this was being built. Because in World War II, most of Nagoya had been bombed out. It was basically gone. So they were rebuilding the downtown. And what she said was, 
the Americans built this. And as she actually waved her hands, sunlight broke through clouds. This was incredibly cinematic, and it was almost funny because it was so ludicrous that it actually happened so well. She waved her hand, and as she waved her hand, the sun broke through the clouds, and she said, America built this. And it was, honestly, in that moment, quite beautiful. And you could see what she was really saying was, America saved Japan from itself. Now, the way the war ended, of course, is a horrible thing, dropping the atomic bomb and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, what America did after that was rebuild the nation. So they didn't just have a defeated Japan and just leave them defeated and just, okay, well, you're on your own now. You've lost the war. This is how you live. They rebuilt the cities. They assisted. They helped out. They took care of the people. And that is why, in modern times, Japan has a very strong relationship with Western countries, and Japan is so anti-war as a nation. Now, you, of course, will find individuals within Japan who want to revert to the emperor system and go back to being warlike and stuff. That is absolutely true in every single country. But as a nation, as a group, Japan is very peaceful and very forward-thinking, primarily because of the influence of America in the 40s and 50s. So that is, of course, nostalgia. But what I like about America is that capacity is still there. And that's kind of a weird way to think about it, because I don't think America is utilizing that capacity right now. America has the power to actually help other countries build themselves into full-on powerful nations that become peace-loving nations. And of course, the current leadership doesn't see it that way. I don't want to get into current politics, but America has not been on track for that. But one of the things that I actually do believe about America is that the capacity to be that nation is still there. And what I'm actually saying is most of the Americans I meet are good people, are kind people, and they want to help other people. And I think as a group, as a country, that belief is still in there. There are lots of problems with racism. There are lots of problems, but there's problems with racism in every country. I've talked about it before. In Japan, it's not racism towards foreign people as in Westerners or Europeans. It's more focused on other Asian people. One of the things I see in Japan as a country is the capacity is there. And I don't think that capacity would be there at all if it weren't for the influence of America and that sort of base philosophy that I think still exists, but maybe has been lost for the moment. So that is the closest thing you're going to get to a love song from me to America. And I'm so uncomfortable right now, I'm never going to talk about this again. So I saw a video on the internet recently. I guess that in itself is not a surprise. And it was Senator Warren walking out of an airport. And she was flanked by protesters. There weren't many. There were about five, six people. And what they were shouting at first was, stop the impeachment. And they were all dressed up in red, white, and blue. And they looked like clowns. That actually, to me, detracts from your message if you dress like an idiot. And I know it's to get attention, but that doesn't make you look like you have a reasonable argument. If you're wearing basically a top hat that is red, white, and blue and a vest with stars and stripes all over it, it's all sort of gaudy, silk-looking stuff. Now, she just walked by and ignored them. So for the first part of the video, they're shouting, stop the impeachment, stop the impeachment. And then when they get no reaction, they start making insults. So they started calling her Pocahontas, which is Donald Trump's insult for her. They're basically mimicking some insults that were made by the president. And then she gets in a car and drives away. So they get no actual reaction from her. She is not 
really responding. And to me, this is showing that there's a problem in people understanding how things work. Because if you want someone to do something for you, so their initial statement, stop the impeachment, is a request of this woman. But then when they don't get a reaction, they start insulting her. Now that is going to reaffirm her position that these people are bad, they're wrong, and therefore the impeachment, the thing that they want to stop, is something that should go through. So this is how you do not change someone's mind. So in Japan, they have a thing, it's very controversial, and it's an area where they kill dolphins. They bring all the dolphins into a bay and they just slaughter them. If you haven't seen the documentaries, you've probably heard about it. It is absolutely horrendous to our sensibilities. I agree. I don't think they should be brought in and called this way. I don't, I'm not on board with this. I do not agree with it. So I watched some videos of protesters go to this town. Now, the first thing they did was shout at all the fishermen. Now, there are a couple of problems there. So like I've just said, shouting at someone, insulting them, does not change their mind. It actually solidifies their position. They're actually going to be more resistant to you. Then, the secondary issue is they were shouting at these Japanese fishermen in English. So the Japanese fishermen, I mean, I can assume they could figure out what you were saying, like just from context and tone. But at the end of the day, they don't actually know what you're saying, so they don't get your arguments. Now, this is in this case, the fisherman's lifestyle. It is part of a long-held tradition of fishing, and they fish for dolphins. So your moral quandary with it is not their moral quandary. So the first thing you have to get past is judging them on your social mindset. Because what you really want to do is get to get them to stop is to change their way of thinking. And as soon as you are aggressive towards someone, they are not going to listen to you anymore. So I saw people blocking traffic. So the fishermen were going to go down to their boats and they just stopped in front and they wouldn't get out of the way of their little trucks. So now they're frustrating them. They're making them angry. They're impeding their ability to do their job. Again, one that they don't have a moral quandary with. So they've solidified in these men's mind that they're just unreasonable people. They don't know how to make a cogent argument. They don't know what they're doing. So why would I change my lifestyle to satisfy them? And then because you've come to a d another country, the social pressure at large is not there. Society has not turned on these people. In fact, Japan as a society tends to support Japanese traditions. So you're asking them to take something they've done maybe for hundreds of years and telling them to stop because it's morally wrong. Well, you need to prove that to them. And that's going to be very difficult because they probably fish from everything in the ocean. They don't see a difference between... Uh, salmon and flounder and any other sort of fish and a dolphin. It's just another food source. But this has become the nature of discourse when it comes to ideological issues is make your statement and then back it up with insults or shouting or something like that, which is underlying implying violence, if I'm being really honest. Because I'm angry, I'm shouting, I'm getting really upset. But then again, none of those things will change my mind. So you really want to change someone's mind, you have to take a different tact. It's one that takes a lot more time. And I think this is where people's political arguments fall apart because they're not willing to take the time to really do things properly. You need to convince someone that what they're doing is wrong. And you're not going to convince them that something is wrong because you don't like it. Because the fact that you don't like it doesn't actually mean anything to them, especially if they like it or if they think it's good or if they think it's necessary. The shouting Pocahontas to me actually was really clear 
They're not even trying to have any discourse. They're just shouting at her. So of course she ignores them and drives away. And they've lost their opportunity to actually engage with this person and maybe convince them of something wrong. But that would require reasonable discourse. And the dolphin culling, it's similar. Because first of all, you're going to need Japanese people to speak to them on your behalf. You need to convince them that there is a moral issue here that they don't recognize. For whaling and probably dolphins, I actually think what you should be doing is not talking about morality. You should be talking about things that are more realistic and have a bigger impact on their lives. Dolphin fishing and whaling are not really sustainable because in the long run, people aren't buying whale meat anymore and people are offended by the idea of dolphin meat. And that's true for a large segment of the Japanese population. They won't stop you from doing it, but they're not buying it. So if you think financially in the future, you need to make a shift in your business to maintain profitability, which is what all these people who are working want to do. They want to make money. So if I come to you and say, look, you're in a business, I don't say it's morally abhorrent. I say to you, look, it's not sustainable in the future. We have to talk about you shifting your business towards something else that is sustainable and that way you can keep making money for yourself and your family and your future generations. If your kids grow up to be fishermen, if they could be a new kind of fisherman, that would actually be better for them. It would be more profitable in the future. That is something I think people would actually listen to. Now you're talking to the realistic needs of the people in their lives. So weirdly, I'm not saying protests are bad because I think it is good to demonstrate that a lot of people have the same feeling. So that motion is good. But at the end of the day, it actually does very little. Any argument based on morality is also a bit moot because probably the person you're speaking to does not share your moral views. I think if you want real political change in the world, you have to start thinking about real people, what they really feel and what they really care about, and show them how to make that better in the future, doing it a different way. The Loss of Podcast. The Loss of Podcast. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or go to VelociPeter.com slash podcast. <coughs> 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 <coughs>